Yes. I would say that's a wonderful way to describe us, Patrick. For those of, for those of you just tuning in, Patrick just said loquacious Will and garrulous Pat. And a uh, nice balmy midwinter night like this, I can think of nothing I'd rather listen to than these guys just. Uh, it's great to, um, it's, uh, I don't know where, maybe it's balmy for you, but yeah. it's certainly not midwinter anymore. No, well, I'm I'm in the Southern Hemisphere, my my garrulous friend. So, oh, the Tropic of Capricorn? Oh, okay. Yes, yes. I'm far, far below on the scuzzy underbelly of the world. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I, I was just doing ir- ironic uh, things without anything to really back them up. So, boom! Loud! Yeah, you're just being, you're just being blatantly racist. <laughs> Wait, what you, what you yeah. think? You think the, the, the global south deserves this moniker of yours? Yeah, that's the so... scuzzy underbelly? That's why they're so economically unproductive, because they're all just I can tell you, you don't have a lot of, I can tell you have almost no brown friends yeah. by the way you talk. Well, you, you, sir, have almost no brows because they're so low that, I don't know. No, I did. It's because I shaved them off in boarding school, and then it never grew back right. <laughs> See, this is this is why well, we we can barely do podcasts. Our rapport is horrible, and and you have this. You, 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 I'm like kind of just permanently disfigured now, and you just poke fun. Yeah, uh, you're an ableist. Yeah, well, you're an enableist because you enable me to be awful by having those stupid eyebrows that I can make fun of constantly. True, truer words were not were never spoken. I do admit my eyebrows are uh, nah. some kind of some type of failure no, on the part of God. No, I'm just kidding. They're good. I'm sorry. Let's look. unintelligent design. <laughs> yeah, uh, unnatural. Um... Uh, what's a uh, selection? <laughs> what's like the opposite <laughs> of selection? I don't even know. Unnatural, unnatural selection. Yeah, unnatural, like, not selection. Artificial selection. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it just makes no sense. This is so bad. All right. It's good well, now. Well, Epic. Are, Excellent. Okay. Okay. So now that we, we, we've, we've made some headway with this uh, momentous uh, 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 episode, yeah. how about we, we un- unpack as a, as a prologue what we're actually talking yeah. about? Go ahead. I can do it. <laughs> yes, you can. You don't. You should do it. Okay, we've been watching a lot of Calvin movies and reviewing them and exchanging. Calvin movies? Yeah. You mean movies about John Calvin, yeah. the uh, 16th <laughs> century religious reformer? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, famously associated with uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Yeah, and the Reformation movement and turned into his own little the re- theocratic fiefdom. Yeah, we were. We started out with a bunch of Luther movies and even some Zwingli movies. And, uh, oh, that was rough, Pat. We all, we almost stopped being <laughs> friends over this Wingley stuff. Yeah, and uh, uh, I, I can't. Is it wasn't there a guy whose name was like I don't. I just don't remember. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But um, yeah. Now we're watching mumble movies, which is what happens when when Will. Now we're watching John Calvin and John Knox films. Um, yeah. Uh, it's the it's the Presbyterian uh special hour. No, but okay. In all seriousness, we we as, as fun as that sounds, we're not watching those yeah and we wouldn't put you through that yeah we're watching uh cowboy movies is what he yes. meant to say yeah or so, tried to say and um we, we watched several of them uh we've, we've done a, a podcast that has is forthcoming it's yet to be published it'll be out there or well it'll be out there and uh now we're doing one on um i think we did a few actually already but now we're yeah. doing one that i'm really excited about it's probably the, the most um grandiose episode i think that this movie is a clint eastwood movie yeah. came out in 1992 it's probably the most well-known western um across generations wow uh 
Yeah, like if, if you if you if you if you if you like selected a western that was known by everyone, and like you know from the silent generation, the greatest generation, boomers, mm. Gen X, all you know, all that, up, you know, I think they would all know this movie. Mm. I think, and um, some you know more fondly than others. Yeah, um, Unforgiven um, was a one. I think it won Best Picture. Ninety-two, or if it didn't, it, it was close. <laughs> yeah, no, I see that um, did. It got best picture and best director for Clint Eastwood. Yeah, which is unusual because yeah, he wasn't really known as like a, a great director. He was known as yeah, sort of this this um outsider, this like, eclectic, it's this eccentric kind of cowboy wow. um character, yeah. and then he uh character actor, and then he does um, he's also in Dirty Harry, right? This, so he does a, you know a slew of action movies, but he's not known to be this sort of perf- dramatic performative actor. And in in this film, he actually really uh, kind of exceeds himself and surpasses the expectations others uh, imposed on him yeah. as a, uh, as kind of a sideshow. Hmm. Um, um, and honestly, my problem with his his lead role in Unforgiven is that he kind of his performance he kind of he kind of plays like an older character. Yeah, he's supposed to be. He's supposed to play. He he looks old. He's supposed to play a guy who's like forty three, okay. but he, he he seems to be more like sixty two. Uh, I didn't, or fifty. You know, he, he seems like well, a, yeah. He yeah. seems out of out of out of touch with his own age. I mean, he seems older. Uh, he seems older as a person, as a guy, than the role seems to call for. Clint Eastwood himself is too old to play the, the, the character that he's, he himself yeah, has yeah. himself play. No, I, I, I sort of see what you mean, because, like, he's kind of at the start of the movie, he's in this, like, he's in this, like, birthday suit, or not birthday suit, but, like, this, like, old-timey, like, pajama, like, underpants thing, and he's just, like, farming and, like, wrestling, wrestling with pigs. And he seems, like, over the hill, but, like, He's not like a genuine old man, but like as Clint Eastwood, he kind of like he kind of is. He's about ten to fifteen years beyond. But on the other hand, it doesn't—I don't know—it didn't really jar me that much because the whole like, the whole message of the movie seemingly is like, this this schmuck is kind of over the hill, and I don't know that that didn't bother me. That well, much. who really steals the show is actually uh, Gene Hackman. Yeah, uh, and and also Richard Harris when he when he's allowed to talk. But, but but mostly Gene Hackman. Um, yeah, he's he's pretty good. He plays like this kind of corrupt sheriff who like runs the town like his own personal. Not a sheriff, but he's like something in the town. He runs it like his own his own land. It, this is the guy who like well I don't know. Also, I figured out like an hour in that like Dumbledore was in this movie and it like blew my mind. I just knew it was oh, yeah, Richard Harris plays is who played the first Dumbledore. Yeah. Um, is is one of the best best characters in this film? Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Not Shy- Sideshow Bob, but uh, <laughs> the Duke of Death. I don't know. He, oh, what's his name? Yeah, yeah, British yeah. Bob, English Bob. That's it. English yeah, Bob. That's it. English Bob. Yeah. And he's called. And he he has this moniker, the Duke of Death, because yeah. his amanuensis is writing a book. Yeah. Um, he's British, and this this guy is like this dweeb from like the East Coast who. Yeah. Who who's writing kind of who's been sort of summoned to write a book about Bob's life? Yeah, his legendary as exploits. a as a gun as le, well. He's the gunslinger. His legendary yeah gunslinger exploits. Yeah, and um, under um rather like unceremoniously, uh, this is cut short when Gene Hackman's character, who's the town sheriff, beats the fucking shit out of him, imprisons 
English Bob. Yeah. And then he takes he, a shine uh, to this little this like totally pathetic like spectacles wearing immensuensis, great word, and starts like telling him like, oh yeah, you know, you think that guy's actually a total. Well, what he does, he he charms the uh, the, 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 the the you know this like diarist who's like writing English Bob's life story, yeah. and he charms him while they're both in prison, so he has complete control over them. And he charms him in the jailhouse, and he's like, yeah. "Oh, you know, um, you know, this is not really what happened in the book. I was there that night when yeah. he shot Pete, and he Pete didn't have a you know a third leg, or he had or whatever it was, you know, two gun Pete." You know, Pete only had one gun, and blah blah blah. And his dick was so big, that's why they called him Two Gun Pete. But he really only had one. And he just said these like he says these sort of like old man jokes to like yeah. get the uh, the sidekick to kind of like see his perspective. Yeah. Eventually, the sidekick kind of abandons English Bob and becomes yeah. his, uh, Gene Hackman's sort of like assistant for a while until, of course, he like is fatally like ruined by uh, Clint Eastwood's character, whose name is uh, uh, Bill Money. Which, by the way, not the best name I've ever heard, in, in in a movie, and even in a western, it kind of comes off as like, like a like a like a circus name, more than anything. And um, Bill Money, though, apparently is this retar- so he's the main character. Yeah. You don't see him in the context of Richard Harris and Gene Hackman bickering over petty disputes and old squabbles, yeah. but you do you do see um, him taking on this task to help a girl in that same town because uh, she was cut up yeah. pretty severely in the face yeah. by, um, I guess I guess she's a prostitute, right? Yeah. So it was by like a, one of the Johns. And, it, and then her, the John's friends kind of got him out of town, yeah. and they're, all, they're kind of on the run all, as a collection. Uh, and well, um, yeah. some, boy, yeah. some boy goes to... Uh, Clint Eastwood, and he's like, "Hey, man, do you want to get the money for the by uh, take being vigilantes and taking out these guys who yeah. cut out this girl's face?" Yeah. And Clint Eastwood is, um, you know, uh, he's like too old for this shit at this point. You yeah. know, his wife died. His wife yeah. died. He hasn't like you know used a gun in like years. Yeah. Especially against a person. Yeah. But for, he needs the money, and he's kind of bored, and so he decides to do it even if Jesus doesn't want him to. And then he, for whatever reason, he, he's next door neighbors with Morgan Freeman, and Morgan Freeman turns out to be this guy called Ned, who's like, he's not who's next like door a, neighbors. I don't think. I think Ned yeah, used, no, he, didn't. I think Ned used to like run with him or something. Isn't isn't it? That's what I was saying. Okay. Ned was like his like partner in crime or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But and uh, he has an Apache wife now, and apparently he wants to get away from his Apache wife because yeah. she's she's so rude and doesn't and, and doesn't like Clint, doesn't like Clint Eastwood at all. Bill Money, right? <laughs> And so they get they get going, and it turns out that the this like you know adolescent boy that like wants to like work with them. Oh yeah. Turns out he he can't even shoot because he yeah, he, he doesn't, sucks. He's like such he, he, a little. He's like, the worst character in the movie, yeah, and he's 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 t- completely annoying. Yeah. Uh, he's this they, extremely they they, arrogant pissant upstart who thinks he's the ultimate badass, and these old guys are like oh you don't even know they just know how how much real life sucks and isn't like the movies. Even though movies haven't been invented yet, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he's um, well, he's 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 effectively just like a doofus, and he 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 drives home this sort of belief that like 
oh yeah, young people are like degenerate now, and you yeah. have to get old people to do all the all the the real work. Yeah, and young people are just sort of ineffectual. And he really drives that home when you watch the film. I feel like Definitely. because this is a 90s movie, you're kind of watching it like, oh, is this going to be like every other Western I've seen? Or is it going to be kind of negative, pessimistic, and gloomy? <laughs> and yeah, it, it yeah. was all, it hit all three with like, you know, with flying colors. Yeah, I, I feel like there was just this. I mean, I hate to like, I, don't, I really don't want to like regress to just discussing eras of film history granularly, which we've already done. But like, I do feel like the 90s were all about like, postmodern like very extremely pitch black cynical and like unveiling the myths behind everything and showing that they're insubstantial and but this well, is it wouldn't be granular i i i but i do think that there are large there are broad categorical brush strokes that yeah. are painted across these decades yeah and sometimes even subdivided into you know yeah. five-year stretches but Overall, you can do just the deck. You can paint the deck in it's, certain it's, color. It's like the gold. They're, they're markedly distinct from each other. Yeah. But in the '90s, you know, there you have this. The, the millennium is ending, right? The second millennium yeah. is ending. Yeah. So wrapping up the second millennium, there's all this pessimism about, yeah. you know, what Western society is up to, yeah. and you see this permeate every aspect of media, yeah. including this movie. Yeah. Even though it's early '92, which is early '90s. You see it in this movie quite a bit, and one of the, one of the symptoms of that is that all the young people are just shitheads, <laughs> and all the old people are these like glorified like, uh, like you know they're lazy. Just weary. They're they're kind of on the la edge laissez, of laissez faire. You know, laissez faire. Like like mm -hmm. sort of like um like um been there, done that. Dotards that don't really yeah. have to any 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 points to prove anymore, and they just yeah. done it all, seen it all. Yeah. But the reality is that in the plot, as it unfolds, old people are the only people that can get anything done. Yeah. And, and, and even the enemy, even the villain is an old, is an old man, effectively, a middle-aged yeah. man. And even the villain of the villain, which is Richard Harris's character, he's also an old man. So there's this weird old fart um, <laughs> dynamic going on through, throughout the entire film. There's almost no real young characters. Yeah. But this is exactly, this hammers in exactly why this film appealed cross-generationally. Well, it was a typical, you know, film that you would watch with your dad if you were a lad at the time. You know, or even now, you could watch it with your dad, or I, your, vice versa. I, I may have said this, like, last time, but I feel like there was a whole genre at this time. And not, not a genre, but there was just a tendency in movies at this time period of, like, of a guy who, like, has to, like, he, he's to just totally, like, cucked. And he's, like, just this kind of, like, somehow, like, essentially strong man who kind of has forgotten his strength and is just, like extremely depressed and you know lives this kind of useless neutered herbivore existence and then like somehow something reminds him that like he's a badass in the end and he like does an uprising and has this cathartic like murder spree like fight club was like that american beauty or whatever was like that like like there's a whole genre of movies like that and this is kind of evan is like that yeah, yeah i mean any brad pitt movie from the 90s it feels like um uh, American Beauty is a good nod. I, uh, I I always feel like American Beauty is kind of one of those like um, elusive sort of uh, yeah. uh, you know uh, uh, mysterious stranger flicks that you you don't hear about too often because it, it, it's provocative. Yeah. It, it, it the title is suggestive, but it's not suggestive of what the film is actually about. Yeah. And the film is provocative in a way that glamorizes um uh lasciviousness but at the same time de-glamorizes it 
Yeah. Um, in this sort of strange, like, conflict of themes. And that kind of movie just doesn't work. It doesn't work that well. Yeah. Um, it feels a little bit like a movie that would have been made actually later on. It's like almost like a, it's ahead of its time. Well, I mean, that's um, that's sort of. I think say, I think yeah. I, I think this I think just you know the severeness of the message in that film was what allowed it to be made in the '90s rather than in the early 2000s yeah. or sometime after. Well, I mean, you could in some of... Paul, perverted Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, contraption. <laughs> yeah, but but I guess the point is like. There, there's a theme of like a guy sort of rediscovering his like power sort of and that was like the very deep inspiration theme that i felt this movie was ultimately about you know this this movie's uh a guy discovering his power yeah yeah well this rediscovering. okay so so rediscovering yeah i mean what do you think i mean what, what, that's what, a, what that's a really your... i think that's that's a cartoon explanation i think the movie's far deeper than that okay I, I, mean, I know because yeah, it's like, not it's not that I mean, yeah, you're if, right if you saw it on TV and you didn't want to like wait past a commercial break or two yeah you'd think oh this movie's about this old man that kind of gets back into it no, you know yeah. kind of gets back in the saddle you're right you're right that's, him, well that's why that's figures why himself out well that's the thing like that sorts not, out the kinks that's not you're right it's it's there's something there's something sort of deeply like unsatisfying about that if you're looking at it from that angle. You know, like his final ultimate murder revenge spree, which I think is in like the last five minutes, it just sort of rings kind of empty or something. I mean, what, what do you think? What, oh, so you, for those, so not bore everyone at home. The um, this film is like it can be it can be subdivided into like more than just three acts. There's there's kind of like a revenge spree that happens at the at the tail end. Yeah. Um, in the in the, around the midpoint or so, there's a, a transfer of power from English Bob yeah. to um gene hackman's character who i think his name was bill or something i forget what his name yeah. was and it and the, the reason that is important is because the town um has this there's it all it all figures around the central town and the town is a little weird because they don't yeah. allow anyone to carry firearms yeah. and in the old west you're, you're supposed to be allowed to carry firearms on your person mm. but this town has a sort of maniacal overzealous sheriff gene hackman yeah. Yeah. who is just like it's just a control freak uh you know totalitarian even yeah and and he basically relinquishes guns from everyone upon entry uh english bob showed up because english bob is english bob he didn't want to relinquish his firearms yeah. he kind of any but but the problem was that gene hackman's character knows him yeah and knows that he carries a um like a like a derringer or some kind of 38 in his uh like a small gun in his in 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 his coat he hides it on his person so even though he gave him his gun he knew he was hiding one and then once he got his second gun from him he tricked english bob into giving up his second gun then he beats the shit out of him turns out it was independence day so he ever no one really you know that kind of gave him this sort of moral authority to to beat up english bob for breaking the law or whatever yeah although to be fair i don't think that law was the law I think it was just Gene Hackman being, you know, you know, Chairman Mao and dictating everything. And <laughs> well, I, I, and, I think it was. I and think, uh, yeah. and for whatever reason, this conflict between English Bob and Gene Hackman's character, the sheriff, like this conflict is sort of like what Reb, what it, 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 it like it has nothing to do with um, 
uh, Clint Eastwood trying to avenge the prostitute whose face was cut up. Yeah. It has really nothing to do with it. I know, I know it that. Just, the, the whole plot. It just yeah. sets the pace for, like, when he does kill Gene Hackman. It just makes it justified because you realize that Gene Hackman is enough of a piece of a shit that if he got killed um, <laughs> randomly and suddenly, yeah. it just kind of would work. Violently, yeah. Violently, suddenly, randomly, he's killed by... by um, and it just it just kind of works because you have all this uh, um, exposition in the subplot where he arrests English Bob and sort of t psychologically tortures him. Yeah. Um, but then the weird part though is that I don't really understand it because English Bob is eventually released um, despite being traumatized. Yeah. Um, the amanuensis stays on his own free will yeah. to uh, uh, record the sayings of and doings and you know the verbiage of Gene Hackman, and yeah. then. And then, um, um, it seems like it's, you know, it's like a, it's like a new, it's, it's a, it's a new piece for everyone, like a greener pastures. Right. Yeah. But, but for whatever reason, um, Clint Eastwood's, um, friend walks into town after abandoning the quest, um, because of his conscience, you know, uh, this is, and he's black. Oh, oh so yeah. I, I'm and, 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 and right, this is Morgan Freeman, right? And Morgan Freeman's character is black. And so he shows up in this town with like probably a gun. Yeah. And they just, the people in this town are a bunch of rednecks. Uh -huh. And there's a bunch of, a lot of the, the sheriff's deputies are, there's like six sheriff's deputies. It's like way too many sheriff's deputies for one small town, <laughs> very small town. And so they're just crazy rednecks and they yeah. just literally kill Morgan Freeman yeah. for like, um, and that was kind of like the moral, like, you know, like stake driving into you're supposed to drive into your heart was just yeah. like, oh, Morgan Freeman got killed for like no fucking reason. Yeah. And that was supposed to make you feel something. Well, and that that's but, what pushes Bill Money over the edge, I think. Yeah, well, Bill Money actually he sort of went over the edge a little because he he shot the um friend of the guy they were pursuing. Yeah. Uh, or or he shot the guy that cut up the girl. And so he did the execution yeah. that they were all bank banking on, and he was the reason why they were able to collect the money in the first place. Yeah, because the sh but, the, the Showfield kid, the little the, the kid, ultimately sort of was not able to go through with it, and then Morgan Freeman realized that death is so ugly that he just he couldn't go through with it either. Well, the Showfield kid, or he killed one person while they're shit while in the bath in while they're in the uh -huh. in the outhouse. Yeah. And so and he he was lying to them before and saying, "Oh, I killed like eight people," but mm -hmm. because he's this like young kid who just doesn't. He, who just lies all the time when he actually had to kill someone he kind of like lost his shit yeah and became and became sort of bitch made and then didn't want to do any more killing and um Clint Eastwood though you know he became more aggressive while the while all the other characters became more pacified yeah so uh Bill Money goes into town at following Morgan Freeman's character finds that he's dead and being displayed on like the outside of this bar the saloon yeah inside a casket too Oh yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's pretty grim, yeah. yeah. And um, he was like, "Okay, these guys are all just pieces of shit, and, and no questions asked." And he goes in, and he just shoots up the place. Basically, I think he kills yeah. six people or less, but yeah. still a lot. And you learn then also, sort of tied into from this, a lone uh, gunman, this little guy who's writing a book about you know the the fast hands of the old west. You learn some that it's it's not even about like how fast you are; it's just about being like calm or something. Remember that? 
Like, um, there's something decisive in how Clint kills. Oh him. yeah, what Gene Hackman's character uh, yeah. spells out to his 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 little diarist, the amanuensis guy. Like, <laughs> uh, he 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 spells out to him like, oh well, you know, um, you know, in the old west, like when you duel someone, you don't just go you don't just go as fast as you possibly can, because then you over overcommit and you shoot and miss, and then yeah. the other guy who has a steadier hand, you know, took his time actually kills you. Yeah. So he explains sort of like you know like the mechanism the mechanics of you know gunfights yeah. in a way that's you know sensible and he um but this is the, but he also says this in a way that's like self um glorifying yeah like oh because i'm not super fast of a shot myself yeah that means i am i am like i am a you know level-handed reasonable yeah. uh, gunfighter but then when bill money walks in He's fast, and he do, and he doesn't need to have any. He doesn't have any excuse. Like he's he's fast, and he he shoots, and he, you know, like so. Like the, the whole narrative this guy was telling himself, like, oh, I I go slow because I'm a reasonable, you know, calculated guy. Oh, I see. Yeah. It, it falls apart when Bill Money shows up because Bill Money is really fast. Is he? And he, and he's accurate. That's been a minute, but he's definitely accurate. I mean, he gets everybody. He's he's fast and he's accurate. Yeah. And Gene Hackman's character, whose name I keep forgetting, the sheriff, I guess we just call him Sheriff. <laughs> sheriff Ted or whatever, Sheriff Ned or whatever. No, Ned was the other guy. Uh, but Sheriff, you know, Bill, Bill Money's character, he isn't the fastest shot. But he's all, but he just can find people that are overconfident and outshoot them because he knows they'll overshoot and miss. Mm, interesting. And they'll fire too quickly. But Bill Money is, is the real deal. And yeah. so Bill Money you know flops out his 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 rifle or whatever and he shoots as fast as possible and he gets the job gets done. Everybody, yeah. and and it's something that basically these these charlatan you know fake outlaw cowboy you know yeah. you know sheriff's deputy type these law these lawmen who these square lawmen they've never experienced that kind of outlaw lifestyle and so they don't yeah. understand like the the outer limits of of being a, of being a gunfighter yeah and then when they encounter when they encounter it they get wrecked. Yeah, I mean, I think... And that's kind of... That's also the moral to the story beyond just, like, defending Morgan Freeman or whatever. Yeah. The other moral to the story is, like, you think that you you know you know what you're doing, but then you meet someone who, like, lives by, by the gun. Yeah. You know? And that person really actually knows what they're doing. Not just, you know, some... Not just guy who... Because at the end of the day, these... You know, the movie's a little obfuscating about this uh-huh. but at the end of the day the lawmen don't really have that much experience fighting yeah and they, they kind of just bloviate all the time yeah whereas whereas the outlaw you know has a lot more experience fighting it's just yeah. it's a rare it's a rare occasion that you would meet an outlaw who is who 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 had so much experience and hadn't died already yeah. well and I, had, I think... had lived to a young an old age yeah most of them die young i think uh i think that's like I guess I would shift then from saying I don't know. It's it's like the the. It's not really like the message of the movie, but like like the 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 most cathartic thing about the movie, is sort of witnessing that just seeing someone who's really really good, like, I don't know, like suddenly just hold fast against all the. All the amateurs, you know. It, I, I'm only saying I'm only talking about the in these terms of inspiration because. I just saw like the the new Appaloosa, and for some reason, like everything, all the pieces were there, but like somehow it was not greater than some of its parts. So it's like, oh, okay, Appaloosa. I will, I'll disagree. First of all, um, while we're talking about right. it, 
Appaloosa is not greater than this. Uh, Appaloosa is, it is, it, it is, um, the sum of its parts were like pretty wacky. Um, but uh, a movie. The music, the music in particular is just so. But keep in mind, it was from 2007. It was directed by Ed Harris, so who was also the lead. So he was doing, it was kind of a funny, like, um, uh, take on Westerns. It was trying to be morally sort of neutral, which I liked about it. Because, um, which is, you know, we saw that in 310 The Union, which also came out in 2007. And, and it, it appeared, it had this sort of moral neutrality um, theme. Yeah, with, with Appaloosa, and keep in mind, Appaloosa is not a remake Appaloosa is the name is appropriated from an older film, but the films are about separate issues yeah. and separate uh, have separate storylines. However, this Appaloosa film has Viggo Mortensen as the deuteragonist and the protagonist is Ed Harris, and they're going up against yeah. Jeremy Irons as the antagonist, who is a sort of cutthroat villain yeah. outlaw. He's great. And, he's really fun to watch. He's really fun to watch, yeah. and Ed Harris is a little like goofy and and um yeah. uh, in long in the tooth. And sort of sort of seems slow witted, and then Viggo Mortensen's kind of like this intelligent, sort of like calculated, like um, articulate um, assistant, and it's, and, and it's sort of like companion. A, it's a bit like it's it's a bit this is a bit of a stretch, but it's almost like it's like Don Quixote and uh, Sancho Panza. Panza. I mean, it's a little like it's a little that, like, it's a little is, like that. Little, little. It's a li- it's slightly like that. The re- the reality is that it's a it's a it's this guy seems to be a competent lawman. Yeah. But the problem is is that is that um he falls in love with like Renee Zellweger, mm-hmm. who uh, and she is basically like a like a hoe. Like she'll fuck anyone. Yeah, she she is. and <laughs> and they don't they don't really see it coming. And then when she does sleep with like some of the people, some of the villain characters. Yeah. They're they're sort of torn. Like, do we like still like associate with her? And because the town is so small, they end up having to. And Ed Harris does love her, mm-hmm. and she even tries to hook up with Viggo Mortensen. Uh, yeah, she does. And and, and then Viggo Mortensen oh, um, demurs, I suppose. And then she <laughs> says that Viggo Mortensen tried to rape her, uh, or whatever, or yeah. something something to that effect. Yeah. And Ed Harris is like, no, that that's not what happened. Now the irony is that Ed Harris is the uh, the sole arbiter. Of like you know these kind of you know, you know crimes and punishments in town because he's yeah. the he's the sheriff. Yeah. So anything anything that people complain about goes all the way up to him and not yeah. much and not much further. Yeah, he he like embodies yeah. the law in a very like he, he you know he, he totally does and yeah. that's why that's why I I forgave him being sort of funky and like sort of like sloppy. Yeah. Because I I understand that that's also how the law is. So oh, it, it wow. seemed like an apt personification. That's crazy. Um, That's interesting. <laughs> and um, I didn't, I didn't like love the movie. Like I thought that yeah. some of the gunfight choreography was weak. I thought the um, there was a lot of talking, not enough shooting. Yeah. Just just broad brush criticism. Three Ten Yuma is, is definitely way Pretty, way better. In my Three Ten Yuma by comparison looks like um like a video game or something. Uh, it looked, well, I don't want to go that far. Let's stretch it, stretch it out like that. But yeah. 310 to you, if I can compare to Appaloosa, looks like, um, you know, Ben-Hur compared to, like, hmm. um, well, 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 Gone with the Wind. Oh, that's interesting. That's, yeah, it's like... That's a fucking crazy-ass, like... I see what you mean, but that's like a... That's, yeah, you're right. A little you're crazy. Totally right. Well, 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 it's not crazy. Drain, it's, but... it's not. It's not It's not crazy at all. It's, like, totally accurate. But it's almost like too accurate because like 
you know, yeah. a lot of people, for some reason, a lot of people, like, respect Gone with the Wind without having ever seen it. But if you were to see it, you realize that, like, <laughs> you'd really, yeah, like, if you were just to go beyond the box office, like, gross lists, you realize it's, well, it's Gone with a, the Wind is, 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 is you know, it's just like, it's like a send-up of that kind of that anti-bellum or whatever it was, uh, reconstruction era kind of, um, um, you know, like pseudo aristocratic, uh, yeah. um, family, family life. And it was, it really had, it was a criticism of the deep South yeah. and it's and it's establishment values that like, sort of like, mm. sort of were ignorant of like, and naive to like, you know, the little guy, but anyway, yeah. gone with the wind was also like, it was a one-off book. I, I think, uh, I forget her name who wrote it, Margaret Mitchell or something. Sounds right. Yeah. Sounds right. Margaret Wood. I don't know. But she, um, that was like the one <laughs> Those book. Those both sound right. That's crazy. That uh, was like the, the her, that was like her one big, you know, novel. And yeah. she wasn't like this uh, David Grisham or, uh, yeah. uh, who, who's the guy who wrote Jurassic Park and a bunch of other stuff. Oh, uh, Michael know. Crichton. Yeah. It was like a Michael Crichton who just like had like you know had a screenplay with every every fucking you know mass marketed book they wrote that had like had like a, an Oscar worthy screenplay or something. Yeah. She, you know, like 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 Stephen King. Did Stephen King do Jaws? I don't know. Peter, I, I don't think. No, so. Jaws was no. That was, sorry. That was okay. Anyway, yeah. so Peter Bench. Yeah, no, he did. He did Carrie, but he didn't do Jaws. Yeah. Right? He, yeah. he did it, but he didn't do Jaws. He did The Shining. Um, the shiny, right, and caring, right, yeah. and it, but no, no jaws. Weird. You think you think that that would, you know, like creep in there at some point? I guess not. Um, Stephen King is a little overrated, though. Like I feel like, yeah, definitely. I feel like, I mean, I feel like that's he's he's just it's it just because his last name is King, so people like saying his name. Yeah, I know. You know? It's very. It, just, it has gravitas. <laughs> yeah, just of itself. <laughs> So Appaloosa, um, the part of what I realized that Appaloosa was effectively a B movie, even if the budget was really high, was that yeah. when they shoot those guys in, in that town, and there's like four of them, and they, they take shots of them on the second floor and the first floor kind of in the same go. Yeah. They, they, and it's like, and then, they, and then they get shot too, and they're like, well, everyone could shoot. I didn't, it, oh, and it's like, a, it's like a meta joke about uh, Western films and like how yeah the bad guys can never yeah. shoot accurately yeah and then the, that's and what Harrison i'm saying like, yeah. get shot and they, it's uh, like that that kind of that kind of lazy writing yeah is uh, is what is what made that film i don't even know if it's lazy it's just sort of silly yeah that kind of silly writing is what takes you out of the movie and it's the last thing you want in a good western is yeah. to be like removed from it yeah. unless unless the movie is so chock full of humor yeah. that at some point you would want to think that they had the intelligence to do that yeah but that movie, Appaloosa is not that funny of a movie, all told. No, well, that's a um, weird thing. It's silly, but not funny. But anyway, going back to Unforgiven. So Unforgiven is Forgive like the, is like the... the exact opposite of Appaloosa. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like it's gr it's it's really grisly and grim, and sort of it has this noir undertone, yeah. and you, you kind of don't really know what what genre it is. You can tell that they're sort of like tear jerking for the oscar noms yeah and it's got that yeah that whole like it's a bit, it's, it's a yeah. bit artificial i think the movie yeah it it is it i don't mind it that much but it is a little bit because like you're saying like there's this like thing where like if you want to really win an oscar you have to like expose the darkness of life and you have to like at least verge towards the maudlin even if you don't actually ever get there 
And this movie, like any movie that sort of exposes the darkness of life, kind of verges sometimes toward the maudlin. It gets, it gets maudlin a lot when you have the uh, yeah. the prostitute scenes. Yeah. All the all the courtesans, all the courtesans are like, yeah. uh, like, like you know, uh, like drowning in their own tears in every yeah. fucking scene they're in, yeah. and they're bemoaning their like sad misfortunes about having to live in the old west yeah. when uh, men are everywhere and men run the town and women have no rights and it's like okay we get it you you you, you gals keep saying this in every scene you're in and they're in a lot of scenes <laughs> and they it's just funny. and then and there's also like the young prostitute and then there's the old prostitute and then there's the guy who is mean to the prostitutes yeah. and it's like are you guys ever gonna let up on this like hating the prostitutes sort of like a subplot that's yeah. sort of like it's sort of like surgically like installed into the fucking movie like <laughs> no well no it's, one really it's not it's it's the driving that's the inciting incident is there is the fury of women scorned and you know rightfully so kind of i'd say it is and it isn't i think the inciting incident is literally just like the, that 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 redneck yeah. kid showing up and just demanding things from Clint Eastwood and making him kind of look like a, like a bitch or a pussy or whatever yeah. for like not wanting to go out and fight, you know, one last ride or whatever. But like, well, that's, it, you could, you could have started the movie there almost like without this kind of grim rain soaked, like again, old, old wild west right. pants, man, like doing something horrible to show that history was a nightmare all along. You could have started it with the kid being like, "We, I got a job for you. Don't you want to ride along with me? Like, oh, you just suck. You're not cool. Like, you could have started there. So you're right. It's not, it's not critically important to the plot. But then again, neither was uh, neither was Dumbledore's whole thing. Like, you didn't have, like, the fact that that never wraps around and comes to anything substantive, is kind of, I don't know. I don't, I don't want, I don't want to be like Aristotelian, but like, I, I would have liked. I just feel like stuff shouldn't just be... There shouldn't be, like, 40 minutes of a movie that, like... But again, that has no connection to the movie. But again, like, I, 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 ironically, I forgive Unforgiven for its flaws. It's still, like, good, you know? I think it is... It, it, unfor- I, 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 the subplots are the best parts of the movie. I think yeah. the actual plot is, is annoying. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, Clint Eastwood has to wake up and then and and relearn how to ride a horse, and he has to and he has yeah. to relearn how to shoot a gun and relearn how to you know be mean to someone and re relearn how to kill a man. It's like, yeah. is any is any of this like engaging? No, and that's why they have like the whole Richard Harris you know bickering with Gene Hackman, yeah. and they have the prostitutes crying over over their over their you know the slits in their in their cheeks. Yeah, you know it's like, and then like he's like kind of like out of left field sort of situational yeah. um exposés that like yeah they make you feel things in, a, in an app in a malpropos kind of way like I, yeah okay like i really 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 start to get the impression that it's a serialized format like you're actually watching you're literally watching a great uh, charles dickens book wow like, very interesting and, yeah i think you're right and, well, I, but that's that's my that's my problem with it is that it is that the actual plot is not compelling enough? So they had to, yeah. they had they had they had to, you know, stitch together this sort of Frankenstein monster of a movie, and it, and because it was it just because it because it kind of 
it was able to poke in so many different emotional directions. Yeah. It got Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Well, I, I probably told you before, but I never trust that stuff. Like, I never – I mean, I don't – I really don't trust critics a lot because they'll say that stuff is amazing that I don't think is that good. And conversely, they'll say that stuff is trash that I think is actually pretty good. Well, I, uh, there's someone so, who sees, like, you know, four or five or six movies a week in wow. theaters. Wow. Um, uh, the movies that are always, like, like the goofiest ones yeah. are always the ones that are the most exciting to see. Yeah. And then the ones the ones that, like, everyone tells you to see, they're just kind of, like, okay. Yeah. And then the ones that are, like, you really want to see, they end up sucking. So, yeah. like, expect expectations, you, you'd think, you know, when you're, like, when you're looking at like older movies, I think expectations are, are more uh, attuned to what you, you yeah. to the reality. Yeah. But totally. when you're watching movies as they when you're watching movies as they emerge in the big picture yeah. in the silver screen, yeah, I think there it's it's hard it's easier to get tripped up. Yeah. And be sort of it's like almost like a different perceptual um, yeah. ability to filter out you know movies in content in, in real time than to look back in the archive and pluck out whatever is like has immediate you well, know cover appeal yeah i mean that is that's basically like the entire faculty of of aesthetic criticism is being able to look at something and without anyone telling you whether it's good or not being able to tell can you judge a book can you judge a book or a movie by its cover no. i think i think we, we all learn how to do that but i just don't i i i have, I, have, I just want to remind you know you and anyone that like going out into the theaters and actively watching new material yeah. is, is, is a, di is a, is a different game than just like going into, you know, you know, like Amazon, you know, prime and looking at what the old like reruns are and or whatever the old, like, you know, rent rentable films. I mean, yeah. we, we knew, we knew, we, we remember, we're old enough to remember going back to the DVD rental yeah, stores and, and you yeah. could, and you could literally like a book judge the, the film's, you basically cover. had to because no one had smartphones. There's no internet, really. So you just had to like look at it and be like, "Does this look?" Oh well, yeah, or you'd sorry. read. You read like sort of the log line on the back. Yeah. And then kind of inspect the. They had this. They had this really odd font on the back of all those DVDs yeah. and VHS tapes. Yeah. They had this like. They had this like. It wasn't italicized. It was like broadened and elongated, heightened. Yeah, font. yeah. It was like flattened, almost robotic font. A lot of them, anyway. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that was where they. That's where they listed the credits on the back of the film, and it, that was always what you wanted to know is like what who, what actors were in the film, but you could hardly read it because the font was so weird. Yeah. So like you kind of, that was an involved, rather involved way of like finding out about what movies are out there. But going yeah. to a theater is in it, fundamentally, yeah, it might be maybe it costs more, but it's less involved because you're you're just kind of showing up to something, and yeah. and you don't want to be spoiled. So you you don't ask the person what goes on in the film, and the chances are they don't even know what happens in the film because they probably haven't even seen it despite yeah. working there. And then you just go in and without reading, you know, uh, you know Pauline Kale or Richard from the New York Times or the New Yorker what his what his view is like. I forget the guy's name, but there's a really good critic at the New Yorker who took over after Pauline Kale, and he's he's pretty famous and Richard so and so. And um, I would read. I, I do like his reviews. I think Tennessee Williams or someone to that effect said there's only, you know, five major critics, um, at any time. Five ma and then everyone else is like, you know, is like, like, uh, you know, is like. No, I think it was, I think it was like, Harold Bloom who was like, he was such a dick, but in a very charming way. Someone was like, oh, you, uh, Harold Bloom, are you going to like the 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 
critics conference in New York. There's there's like thousands of critics there, and he was like, "Ha! I doubt there are five critics in the entire world." I mean, he doesn't have a translating accent, but you know, no, he was like, "My, my, my dear boy, I, my dear boy, I, I don't think there are five critics in the entire world." He doesn't have a British accent either, but he should have. I mean. No, he had like transatlantic. Uh, yeah. No, he had. He, 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 he would had, call like, you my dear. You know, that, that's all. That's he, all had, he, he had a New England. He had a New England. Yeah, exactly. New England accent. I gotta. Okay, I gotta. I gotta pause and do something. But how long? How long have we been going on for, man? Uh, Forty-three minutes. I'm gonna pause and then we can. Then we can spend twenty minutes. Forty-three. Really, yeah. So beer back. Just saying. I'm pausing. But okay, I just re-record, re-resumed recording, and apparently, I don't know if this is grotesque or amoral or sick or stupid or otherwise but apparently it sounds like your friend just your friend just got shot what's what's the situation here you want me to pause again you want me to stop this shameless pandering i guess he's texting no, i mean I, he uh, he doesn't say a lot but he sent me a photo and where was it he? looks like a gunshot wound but he, he it, where was he shot I, 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 like where I mean, I think I think it might have been in outside Portland, Oregon, or someplace like that. Where in the body, and how do you know this guy? Hello. I guess he's texting again. Something just. Yeah, well, he said he was at a party and he was talking to some girl, and he got in a fight with her ex, and then oh the ex is, and then he started winning the fight, and then the friend shot Jeez. one of the guy's friend. Yeah. And how do you know this guy? <sighs> All right. One yeah, but now he's downplaying it. He's like, ah, it ain't nothing. Well, yeah, so yeah, so yeah, so back to it. Um, you know, on the topic of westerns, yeah, I mean, originally we were trying to, you know, do a close knit sort of conjunction of of uh, Unforgiven with Three Ten to Yuma and yeah, the man, the man who shot Liberty Valance because we thought they were all praiseworthy western um, pieces of cinema, you know, artistic pieces, right? However, um, we we, we rambled through the uh, 310 and Liberty Balance one. We really liked those. Yeah. So we had to we had to do like a part two effectively. We were like, well, maybe we'll just maybe we'll just glue it together in post and make it seem like it was one whole, you know, super podcast. But the reality was that um, Unforgiven deserved its own mm-hmm. podcast episode, lecture, whatever, because Unforgiven is like, not only does it, is it does it stand alone as a because it, because it, it, it as a movie, which yeah. I think it does, but because it, it, it's a it, one best picture and it really is a drama, yeah, as much as it is a western. But also, Clint Eastwood's movies are not really in the western genre as such; yeah. they're kind of in the anti-western genre, yeah, which emerged in the 60s and they sort of played out in the, to varying degrees of severity from, from there on out yeah. and and, it, and it's still it's still a significant genre even today so we don't i didn't want to like lump the anti-westerns in with the west the the, the, the tried and true westerns because yeah. i just feel like it's sort of politically kind of conflictual and i didn't want to, to risk disparaging one group or another so these are one body of work or another so what we're going to do is we're going to do um, two other Clint Eastwood Westerns. Yes. Um, the fr- basically, we're going to cover all the movies that he himself directed. Yeah. And and then we're going to 
and two more podcasts. So we're going to do one for Pale Rider, which yeah. was released in the 80s. Yeah. And then we're going to do another one for The Outlaw Josie Wales, which was released in the 70s. And then we're going to do a, th a third one where we wrap up all three of these movies, including Unforgiven, oh, wow. and sort of do a, a, a cross analysis yeah. or a comparative analysis. The other thing that's... Uh... Yeah. What's that? What are, you, what are you doing? Uh, so, um, uh, the other thing is there's a movie called Hang Em High. Yeah. Which is a, not directed by Clint Eastwood, but it was kind of a transitional film from when he was leaving his big Eddie Western phase yeah. and entering his own sort of Hollywood phase. Yeah. Because um, these big Eddie Western films are produced, they're Italian for major motion pictures yeah. and shot in Europe, usually in Spain. Yeah. And then Clint Eastwood was really effectively like a European actor, even though yeah. he, he was speaking English dialogue. And then he ended up getting enough international success that he was able to be a Hollywood regular. Yeah. Um, he was also in some TV shows beforehand. Like he was, in the, he was like a, I think a motorcycle cop for, for many, for a few, multiple seasons in this one show in the fifties yeah. or sort of the early sixties. So he he's he was a known actor, but he just he didn't have his big big stardom in, in Western cinema until after his foray in the Italian pictures. And those yeah. ones are still kind of what he's critically best known for. Yeah, his definitely, own direct, directorial directorial urge is not really like what Clint Eastwood fanboys like fan fanboy out about. Yeah. You know, these the movies that we're gonna watch are sort of like these la old man sort of like attempt at like you know. Putting his own, spinning his own vision into Western films, yeah. but it's not the genre. Of that. But it, it, they don't really represent Clint Eastwood's. In a sense, they don't really represent the genre uh, Westerns either. They're sort of in the, they're, the awkward, sort of deformed category of like the latter day old man director. Yeah, well, they're, like they're yeah, they're, they're force his own perspective into they're, uh, they're anti uh, a genre that's you know? a genre that is larger than himself. Yeah, and to be fair. They're very good films, but it's just like we have to admit that Clint Eastwood does not really represent the Western genre. He, he represents a, a strand of it. Well, that's that's kind of the interesting thing. I think you see sometimes in history that this phenomenon, which is actually not faithful to the more substantive and more basic phenomenon, like sort of grows to become the stereotype. Like we sort of think of Clint Eastwood. But, uh, you know, when we think of the cowboy or the Western, we think of him, you know, but I think we do. But true to what you're saying, he was really kind of spaghetti Westerns are themselves a weird, spacey, out there take on the actual Western. Like, you know, fewer people know of John Ford, who's more sort of squarely in the class. Yeah, or, or uh, Sam Peckinpah. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, I mean, and the thing is basically... Or that, yeah. Howard Hawks. Or, yeah, I mean, not that Howard Hawks is really that, I mean, that I, much yeah. of a Western art, but yeah. This, this is kind uh, of... You know, but I, I sort of take it back to, like, I always think of, like, philosophy and how, like, a lot of people adhere to philosophies which are, like, themselves these weird sort of cancerous offshoots of, like, more basic philosophies, which are just, like, less popular but more, like, solid sort of. I don't know. It's a weird analogy to draw, but it's just a, I'm not like, I don't know. I'm not hating on Clint Eastwood. There's something just like, um, you actually gave me a book a long time ago. 
I think it was like, I have a Clint Eastwood yeah. is he's he's like six five or some six six or something. He's like, lanky. He's too lanky to be a cowboy. He's lanky, and yeah. I think it just sort of it. It, no, you know, it, it appeals yeah. to a it appeals to a psychology that's sort of looking for, yeah. you know, like to wild manliness, yeah. overextended rather than the psychology that's looking for like yeah. reasonability. Yeah, his character he's always known for playing like Blondie or like the mis the outlaw the outlying yeah. like stranger or whatever. Yeah, he's known for playing like these like anti-hero sort yeah. of third-party characters mm -hmm. that kind of decide the fate of the uh of the film just in the last minute yeah so and, 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 and from the outside as well like like as a as a pure outsider and, and i i find that that's like kind of disparaging to yeah to like sort of the epic narrative of, yeah. the, of the standard issue western story which is like a bunch of you know cow pokes in a in a, in a dust bowl town they're kind of like you know, like plodding along, like trying to get the crops to grow and, you know, get the cattle out to pasture. And like, yeah, there's like a, there's some a fundamental um, sober sobriety to that and a fundamental yeah. sort of uh, <laughs> respectability, respectability to that. Yeah. But in the world that Clint Eastwood tends to inhabit, yeah. those towns don't mean shit to him. And he sort of just picks he just throws them apart whenever he walks into them. Yeah. And that's not really like this. The, I mean, there's a stereotype that like the, the gunslinger shows at the town and just shoots everyone or yeah. shoots almost everyone. Yeah. But if you actually watch a lot of old westerns, it doesn't happen very often. Well, and if it does happen, it's, it can be. It's usually done in comedies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the, the western people forget that like western films, they made that a lot of them made a lot of the the, the genre made its um. Uh, made a name for itself off off the back of comedies, yeah. and um, that whole that whole idea is sort of is sort of lost in, in in the popular imagination now. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really know the actual like quote classic westerns. It sort of seems like you said maybe in an earlier podcast. There's a sense in which like it's almost like I, I just get the sense like it's always a commentary on commentary on like like uh, it, it seems like there there was never there was never really a naive original i mean like even like you know it, i just get that sense almost like by the time you get that far back it's just not even interesting anymore like the real substance of it is this like meta commentary on itself but um yeah definitely a part of the modern idea of the western is like this lonesome drifter who like wand like blows into the town and cleans up and then rides off in the sunset you know like like by the time it becomes like a cliche, you can put in the far side. Like, it's very, it's very drilled down. Yeah, I um um the the, the many the myriad cliches in the Western film are like, you know, you could write in the back of your hand. It's not really that many. It's like yeah. you know, wander off to the sunset. You know, yeah. shoot up the town. No one knew you know, where, that, where that where that lone steal, came from. Steal, Steal the girl from the, you know, yeah. from the hog, you know, the, the, the rescue the hogtied damsel from, from, from the, the tracks. From the train tracks, right? yeah, that's really. You know. 
Um, you know, you know, shoot someone's teeth out, you know, um, you know, there's a, let the, let the piano player drink and, and then see what happens on the, on the, on the instrument <laughs> as they drink more and more. No, like, no, the one is like, like the piano player keeps playing. I as throw you, dynamite into a mine shaft. As yeah. you kill everyone in the, uh, in the, in the, you know, as you kill everyone in the restaurant or in the bar, in the saloon, the piano player just keeps Oops. playing. Yeah, well, that's the. I mean, that's that's well, that's that's the idea. Is that that's the only safe job in town is to you know, be the <laughs> piano player. But you have to be a ruthless alcoholic and just probably have liver disease. Uh, but whatever. No, but it, it, you know what I find is you watch these westerns and sometimes they have like, like kind of like no, I wouldn't call them Easter eggs, but they're sort of like unexpected features. Yeah. And like 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 you go and you'll heal like I saw one where like. He's like, where, where is Big Paul? And he goes like, well, Big Paul is out e eating lunch. And then they go and they will walk over to Big Paul. And Big Paul is in like a Chinese restaurant. And in my head, I'm like, do they really have that many Chinese restaurants? And like, well, that's know, that's like, the thing. I noticed this in Liberty Valance too. Like to what you're saying, like in Liberty Valance, everyone's sitting around eating their like their like full steak because everyone just gets to eat a steak. And I was thinking like, yeah. if you're like, is this not just like the '60s like? imagining that everything was always a diner like is this really like yep yeah we, we, it's hard living out here but we get our steak every night our full beef steak that we just eat that's our normal diet and if you throw on the floor <laughs> it's not wasting precious food it's not wasting like 300 of our thousand daily calories it's just a it's a sign of disrespect oh you threw away my steak i'm gonna have to order another but i don't care it's more about the gesture I, we have a limited steak here this is america even back then that's my that's my impression. Oh, that, that movie was really like John Ford, right? That yeah. movie was really um, uh, like there's a lot of like symbolism in in his movies, and he was yeah. the, one of the first Western filmmakers, you know, auteur directors, or however you want to put it. He was one of the the, the, the pioneers in like that kind of like symbolic Western you yeah. know film, yeah. and that kind of that actually was transitional itself into the anti-Western. Yeah, genre or subgenre, because once you start like really highlighting things, you start to disassociate from them and have this sort of psychedelic, um, um, like a kaleidoscopic perspective all of a sudden. Wow. And then that means that you're rotating out of your values you had before, and you're rotating into new values. Yeah. And so that's kind of so even though he, like there's some, there's this sort of like high high toned elegance and posh sort of like exceptionalism yeah. to john ford's movies they kind of do reflect like uh, a dissatisfaction with the genre as such like the yeah. golden age of, of westerns yeah you're saying just by like just by adding that just by tweaking it a little and like letting the nitrous flow out of the tank and just <laughs> get, get the gas going a bit and get yeah. you know you're, you're causing enough hallucination that that it's it, you're really you're really kind of like you, you're kind of you're, you know you're metamorphing the genre already <laughs> even crazy. though it's Jeez, it's man. like you know uh, the people like us it's like oh that's a cool liberty valance is like really a standout classic yeah. western film that was I actually know, an yeah. early example of an anti-western yeah i actually i know what you mean well that, that's kind of what i'm saying that like i've never actually so far i've never seen a western that was like that played it so straight that there was never any iota of like this kind of subversive redefinition or just like you know like so far i haven't seen one and i haven't seen that many but i'm sure they exist but it's just it's a bizarre sensation to like never 
all my life i feel like i've, I've always like our culture is so into like this meta commentary on things that, like it's rare to see anything that isn't like guised in hundreds of layers of irony and deconstruction and like just meta oh yeah i mean you're reminding me of that film the lobster which is like yeah or or you know like which is like a meta commentary equivalent of like children of men which yeah. to me was already kind of meta yeah. in, in in many of its gestures yeah ver verging on some sort of like you know post postmodern expressionism neo-expressionism yeah. right uh yeah, exactly. or let me say that again verging on some post postmodern neo-expressionism and but then you didn't stutter this, this, <laughs> but, but despite that yes. you get you get um the lobster which is like yeah. turning that whole thing that i thought was already like this frankenstein monster yeah and and turning it inside out mm -hmm. and so that you can see all the fucking guts and vitriol and the fucking puke you know spewing everywhere and the, the you know the, the, the intracellular fluid you know, spewing all over <laughs> it's, like, it's just like yeah sorry extracellular my, my well bad. after it should be intracellular but once everything's turned inside out. You know. Yeah, it'll be interstellar by the, by the time you're fucking done with it. Yeah. Just fucking shoot it out, shoot it out of, like, like a rocket onto the fucking lower orbit. Jeez. No, but uh, yeah, so that's that's this this grotesque, you know, uh, um, uh, monster uh, of a film is what The Lobster was for me. And then yeah. it represented everything I hated about filmmaking in that year. Yeah, man, the lobster. And, and I now watch that movie. Uh, it's, I had to stop. It, it was too trash. It, rep it represents every sort of like fear I have about the d downfall of cinema wow. as 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 a as a as an as an appreciated art form. Why is that? Do you think it's just gonna get like? Do you think cinema is just gonna get so navel gazy and self absorbed, or or what is it? Because like I said, dude, I, I stopped watching that movie after like thirty minutes because to me it seemed to buy into like this like well, they just they don't talk about it. they're dishonest you know they don't they don't really care about what's on screen they're sort of they're, they're doing it. it's calculated and it's yeah. extroverted and it's it's they're, not they're, it's not sincere man that's it's not it sincere they're anticipating well yeah that's what i mean it's dishonest it's they're anticipating yeah. a response from the audience oh dude i know and, it, yeah i know and that about. response is supposed to be like wow this movie is really authentic yeah. but really people are just kind of like grossed out and um just sort of like put off and yeah because they because the whole like the whole like industry mechanism where no, we get at these best, algorithms dude at out, best they're put off at best at best yeah best. and usually the they, whole, they and just the, buy they, into it and they're so they've s sort of sold their soul and their humanity so well, much that they don't even care they just go along with it i don't know like the whole market psycho psychographics and the demographics yeah. of no the there's, economy, a, there's, there's uh, an consumership there's a disgusting but I will say, who, like who like watch these things and they're like hipsters. this is awesome like they just they just genuinely like it because they've they've become they've sold their soul to man and or, or something yeah i mean they're they're i i i can think of a mutual friend of ours yeah. who actually broke off contact with because he yeah. he was such a poser yeah and such like a um like a try hard wannabe hipster pseudo intellectual yeah you know yeah. I, you know like yeah. always always side always like side dancing like always dancing side to side if, trying to get you know if, if i know if i know who you're talking about i want to say about that guy like and this is gonna like fall on the deaf ears of the, the nobody who listens to us but like that guy his his like redeeming feature in my eyes is that he has like he has a high degree of Petersonian trait openness, so like he will like he'll 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 listen to you talk about stuff that most people will be like, 
Like most people will just like immediate, like like the bar is so low. Like most people will just like shun you and exclude you and just you can't talk about like anything. But but he he's like at least open to that. But dude, yeah, Petersonian, Jordan, 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 Jordan Peterson. Peterson. Yeah, I only say that because like I learned about the Big Five from him. Because in the end, he's actually good at science, even though he's trashed at humanities. But I, I, something else I realized. Jordan, later, like, Jordan, I don't mean Jordan. You know, someone said there's so many, so much you could say about Jordan Pearson. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. But the best thing I've ever heard from a YouTube commenter yeah. was that like he is like, and I've always believed this myself, yeah. is that he is like a smart per- person for dumb people. Yeah, that's pretty true. That's what he. That's what he offers. That's what he represents. That and that is the that is the hill he'll die on. Is a, a guy who you know is, yeah. gets to be the smart guy for dumb people because dumb people don't really want to interact with smart people. Yeah, something we we probably both learned in our in our in our walks through life is that like <laughs> you know like smart people dumb people are kind of like smart people from a distance, but the closer they get, they start to like they start to you know have existential angst. And yeah. and the, to be fair, the smart people have that when they approach dumb people too. So it, it goes both ways. <laughs> That's so funny. So, yeah. so when a they, mutual when they... existential angst based on the other <laughs> person being like retarded or like uncomfortably smart respectively. That's that's really well, that's that's the, well, that, yeah that's 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 the that's the interplay of moods right uh, and it's not the, that, uh, with Jordan just, Pe- yeah. with Jordan Peterson you get this funny in between character where he's not he's like in living between worlds he's neither nor he's not really like a hard boiled intellectual no, who no, comes off not. like he's just a, no, a, a sheer know-it-all like he doesn't really have know-it-all yeah. it factor yeah. but at the same time he's a very amiable like you know soft-spoken patient yeah. observant and considerate interlocutor he's, he's not like joe rogan you know he's a therapist he's the combination yeah. of like the fucking history professor <laughs> that's really really a patronizing yeah and the and your and your therapist that you've been seeing for the last seven years yeah he's yeah. He, he's like Joe. Well, Joe Rogan is um. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Blue collar Jordan Peterson. Joe Rogan is like the tough guy. He's like he's like the scary tough guy version of, of Jordan Peterson. Yeah. He's like yeah. a he's a tough guy for people that don't want to actually be around tough people. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. he like for like 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 Joe Rogan in some ways is actually more intelligent than Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson yeah. is literally talks in self referential logic patterns. You know, That's like he, he just talks, he talks like in this self-deductive sort of like yeah. palaver. It's like this sort of nauseating. Whereas That's Joe Rogan will actually have like at least like some originality. Well, that's that's what I'm talking about. He, he, when you keep it like real in the streets or whatever he's keeping it, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. It's kind of cringe. I even said that, but you know what I mean? Like, like if you, if you're forced to like deduce everything and just like talking like a, like a normal everyday Joe six back guy, you, you really yeah. dissolve a lot of BS and you know Jordan Peterson hates he hates all the like leftist ideologues because I mean I think personally because he shares so many of their like you know you can't like you can't really despise someone unless unless you see unless you see what you hate about yourself in them and that's why Joe Rogan doesn't really hate anybody because he just he's such like a monkey he like doesn't really see himself in anyone like he could never he could never be like molding about anyone well, all these like all these like YouTube slash podcast personality figures. Yeah. There's this cult of personality that forms around them. Yeah. It, it represents different like you know voids and in, in like the emotional the emotional culture or whatever like the culture of emotion. Wow. Like the, like like you have like 
with Joe Rogan, you have like, there's this need to be like, sort of like dignified and um, strong. Hmm. But where do you, where, where do you find that? Yeah. Like, like where, where do you go walking outside, going, walking your dog? Where do you find like this dignified, yet strong sort of like safe space, let's say. That's, you don't, that's insane. Yeah, you don't you really know. find it. I mean, you can create it, or you can, you can like sort of perceive it somehow. Try, but it but I don't think it's, I don't think it's there organically. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. And um, and if it is there, you just, you know, you, you really like it's it's only there for like past, you know, you have to sort of like yeah, it's there like in part, partially. Yeah, not, not well, completely. There there are many strings attached. Many strings attached. Exactly. Yeah. And it was Jordan Peterson. The other end is like, where can I go and like, you know, talk about like the Bible and Jungian psychology and yeah, um, you know, you know, say misogynistic things and just sort of combine it all into one like thought, you know, one like loop, loop de loop of like of like of like of like of a spiel. And we're kind of just <laughs> just sort of like vomit that out at people that like won't, you know, like and that's yeah. that's the that's the echo chamber for Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Jordan with, with with Joe Rogan, the echo chamber is 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 a little bit more benign, I think, but it's it's all all, all the more real because it, because of how benign it is. Yeah, and yeah, that, that, I think that's why it's even more. That's why it's more popular. Well, is the, because yeah. the trick is at play. Well, the, the real the real trick to being popular, honestly, is like if something is just if something just never it if something never catches any sensitivity, like like if. If you can make something or anything that can that can fly under the radar of a hundred out of a hundred people, um, without without like triggering them and without like bothering them, without like sort of irritating them, like if you can make something that like Larry David wouldn't like sort of be annoyed by, you're basically gonna succeed. Like most of it is just like this kind of seamless, smooth. Uh, I think celebrities don't notice that about themselves, really, but. Um, that's that's the output. That's you know, it's it's a weird way to talk about perfection in a democratic mass media age, but that's I think behind a lot of it. That kind of I don't know. It's it's like smoothness. Like easy listening is such a bigger factor in so many things than. Well, I mean, easy like listening. Um, it, it doesn't work in music because music is predicated on on um, on selectivity. Just being like, this is yeah. what I like. Not everyone else should like well, it. Well, that's the thing. You, you I, say I, that. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the chooser. You say so that. I pick this. But the biggest, most, the, yeah. But most of the biggest. However, people, with, yeah. with a with with a podcast, you you would think there would be like music, but with a podcast, it, it, there's a, a tendency for people to kind of default to whatever, just like yeah. like waves against the shore. Yeah, like an ambient machine that just yeah. drones on it's and ambient on. noise. It's ambient at, noise at, at a very never... at a very particular noise yeah. frequency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's exactly if if you stay at that. Four hundred and forty-four hertz, baby. Yeah, exactly. Four forty. But I mean, hey, I would say that dude. applies even to music because the biggest musicians are always very, very, even if they actually suck to anyone who knows anything about music. Like, um, they're very. They don't. They don't. They don't hurt the ear. I guess. I guess some people look at music, like other people view podcasts. You, like maybe like, oh yeah, I'll just play like Beyonce. Yeah. You know, to, to yeah. The left, to the left. A lot of people. Million, millions of millions of idiots. Yeah. You know, like that's that's kind of like the same thing as easy listening. Yeah. I mean, if, if you really, I mean, you really want to break it down, like what's so different from that and the, the easy list, yeah. easy listening genre? Yeah. 
you know, what is so different. But I don't know. I think I think even with still with music, you're right. You're right. Situation. There's much more of a factor of identity. Like I'm I'm this kind of person, so the easy listening I choose is going to be of this racial class. Well, then, but then no, 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 you're also you're also right. I think that like, you know, as a counterpoint, like. You, you, people, people that self, you know, uh, describe themselves as like in listening to some generic yes. um, um, program. Yeah. They they probably don't actually listen to a generic program. They probably listen to something that ties into their particular identity, hmm. and they just they're just sort of blithe to it. That's interesting. That's like, very, like, very interesting. Yeah, that, that's you know that that's that's very like true in a meta sense. Like we all have this idea of this like total slack-jawed quote normie person who only listens to like top 40 and only listens to the biggest things they see on the youtube trending but i think i think you're right i think oh, reality, that person might not really exist exactly we <laughs> never that that person is a fantasy and what it really is is that the actual truly mediocre average media person they you're right they have their own extremely like like extremely unpleasant little particular like niche of like what they kind of like most and the thing they like most typically tends to be this like failed attempt at becoming the actual super dog-brained mainstream thing like i, I know someone who like uh, i mean like the music they send me sometimes like it's it's not it's not like pitbull it's not like totally generic ground zero top 40 but it's like not even it's also not good. It's like it's like something that was like trying to be Macklemore, but like couldn't quite. Like it's like horrifying. It's like the worst. It's a very alienating experience. Um, you know, a lot of, but you're right. I mean, also, you're right. Well, I I think people listen to music based on like who they party with. Yeah. And if you party with like a bunch of squares, you're listening to squared up music, and yeah. you listen to partying with a bunch of cubes, you're listening to cubic music, and party with a bunch <laughs> of dodecahedrons, ovalesque adults, <laughs> so you're gonna party with the fucking, you know, the yeah. uh, you know, the bath ring uh, squad, right? Yeah. Bathtubs, you know, <laughs> bathtub crew, bath salts, so right? Yeah. But like, well, yeah, how's that for word association? Right? But like, you know, you know, but you, you get the. Uh, like, what's your shape, man? Like, what what, what keeps you in shape? You know, are you are you a triangle? Dude, Maybe that's your that's your jam. The sawtooth. Maybe you're like that. You like you like that kind of, you know, that that FM synthesis. Yeah. Now I used to listen to a lot of. I remember actually, I used to listen to a lot of like key gen music and also like very ambient, abstract, electronic music. Uh, there's this band called College. I say band. That's like that's that's a big word for it. And uh, I played it to you once, and you were like, "Wow, man, this explains a lot about you," because <laughs> it's just so, it's so like autistically pure, and like unpleasant. It's like Bach, but without if Bach didn't have a soul, he was just a computer. It's an AI version of Bach. Well, some people think Bach doesn't have a soul. Yeah. So you're onto something. You're, well, you're, you're making a fine point. Yeah, some people think that, but other people. Other people think that, uh, you know, they believe in God because of him. You know, they listen to box music and they're like, oh, I could not believe until this hour, this moment. Oh, it's so repetitive, dude. Isn't it crazy that a guy who lived, who died in 1750 in Leipzig, Germany, could be this repetitive? Like, I can't just... believe it. Yeah, he's like a cuckoo clock. How could anyone be that mechanical and stodgy and autistic? A German in the 18th century was autistic and bloodless and just like, like, 
extremely like pinching his own ass like what that's that's amazing god must exist yeah i know i i don't get bach i don't get the like you're right you have some imagination dude. i don't know where you get these similar well, that's what i'm saying man i i defer too much to the opinion of just dipshits no i'm sorry these guys call me can't talk right now ass. what's that say it again that was very gnomic and pithy, Patrick, but um, some guy was calling me and messaging me, so it drowned it out. What'd you say? Hold on one sec. I'm not... Anyway. Yeah, we will not be forgiven by Clint Eastwood for not, like... So what's the time? What, what time uh, is it? We're at an hour 15. Okay, that's perfect. How about we end right. with the eye of the tiger? Have you ever seen Rambo 1? Like, have you seen the first Rambo? We first should, Blood? Yeah, we should rewatch that and talk about it. Because I saw we it. Could, we, we could do a, an episode on, on, on several of those, yeah. Dude, that, that first one, it's insane. It's like, it's honestly one of my favorite movies of all time. It's that good. Yeah, I mean it's 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 um the whole idea that they're like using him to like yeah you know for like whatever whatever it was like counter terrorism <laughs> whatever yeah no dude if, if they really, made a if they really made like, like yeah if they made an action movie where like a veteran with PTSD like was like killing police officers and like he's the hero like if they made that today it would be considered like extremely like edgy and interesting and artsy but like that was literally just pop culture like oh I'm just gonna go to the movie and watch. Go to the movie theater, watch this guy like massacre. Like, that's what, you know, dude. That's why I love the seventies. Like, yeah, exactly, dude. exactly. It's like it's like the bar was so. It was gra- yeah, it was gravelly, dude. The people like just it was people. People knew that like true grit, exactly. Like you know, carried its weight, carried its worth in, in gold or salt or whatever, depending on your continent. But yeah, <laughs> your your preferred sense of currency. But yeah. Yes. Anyway, I, I got a. Uh, I got a slide, man. All right. We'll, 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 we'll reconnoiter um, next week. All right. We'll do that. I'll talk to you later. Peace. Peace.